Well, good evening and welcome to you all. Um, I'm sure most of you know Richard Pilbrow, who's really responsible for us all being here. Paulie Constable, distinguished lighting designer, and Steve Tompkins, who is the architect of the current transformation of this theatre. But we're going to start looking at really the gestation and the establishment of the National Theatre on this site 40 years ago. Richard, over to you. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Um, wow. I think you all remember a rather splendid production from the Olivier of the 50th anniversary. And to our surprise, we suddenly discovered that this year was in fact the 40th anniversary, <laughs> which is to put it mildly confusing. But it was 40 years ago tonight that Queenie came and opened the building. She got to me, who was standing next to Dennis Lass, and she said, Mr. Pilbro, is the building finished? I said, no, ma'am. But this was the night tonight where Sir Lawrence gave his memorable speech, his only appearance on the stage, and it was a pretty moving occasion, followed by a disastrous production that nearly sent the audience to the bars. Um, I already had many misgivings about some of my involvement with the National Theatre. And about four years before, in the Isle of Col, bottom left, I drew with my friend David Collison the Olivier Theatre at full scale. And I went up to this hill that you're seeing this shot from, and I thought, oh my God, it's bloody big, isn't it? And so I've had a strange relationship with this building. There are many things that I'm tremendously proud about and many things that I'm a little embarrassed by. And ever since uh, 1976, I have been employed various places around the world trying to help people design theatres. Uh, I'm fascinated by the dichotomy that architecture and theatre are two remarkably different worlds that often fail to connect. I love this picture. The architect is obviously on the left with his sword and the theatre man is about to receive what he deserves. So for 40 years I've been doing this stuff, actually nearly 50 years, and have been incredibly lucky, largely on the fame of the National Theatre, to work all around the world with architects famous and infamous. I've been so fascinated, I think the National Theatre is sort of carved on my heart, uh, that about three years ago I sort of thought, what the hell is going on? I don't like the Littleton or the Olivier very much. Um, but they keep doing incredibly successful productions. So I determined to try and write a book about it, and I'm just beginning, and I talked to several dozen people about their experiences here. And all of them know the problems, but all of them have done what theatre people always do do. They've overcome any problems, and with that determination that the curtain will go up on time. So we're going back to the beginning certainly my involvement. This is how the National Theatre started, in huts around the corner in Aquinas Street, and Sir Lawrence looked like your friendly bank manager. He had his office right next door to the main entrance, so he knew exactly what was going on all the time. Now, this was like meeting God. I had worshipped this man 
from a small child, and that's, of course, how I saw him. Strangely enough, while the greatest actor of our time, he was very insecure about his views on theatre and theatre architecture. He gathered a committee around him of all the many of the famous people of the time to advise him on the brief for the building. And I won't read all this stuff, but at the very first meeting to discuss the form of the stage and auditorium, they were meant to produce the brief for the building in four weeks, which is like absurd. But they did pass a resolution. The long history of failure in modern theatre architecture is due to a basically wrong relationship between the architect and the theatre people who are to function within it. George Devine, who was a great architectural enthusiast, said, I'm back from Brazil, where architecture is the current thing. In every case, the hospitals are superb, but the theatres are hopeless. <laughs> Larry said, Chichester was a new experience. Every lounge in the country has a proscenium arch on their television. Hadn't we better offer something else? Michael Elliott, great friend and mentor of mine, says no incompatibility between theatrical resources and the open stage. And Larry said the design of Chichester is cunning, but it's too big. It started interviewing architects. They interviewed 20 or 30 architects. And Lasden was the only man who came on his own. All the rest had come surrounded by consultants. He came on his own, and as Larry said later, very theatrical, just him and nobody else, immensely effective, and as he knew perfectly well, very touching. And he said, surely the most important aspect of what we're talking about is the spiritual one. Larry, of course, we all fell like a hod of bricks for that one. <laughs> he said he knew nothing about theatre. If you want me to be your architect, you'll have to work very hard with me. When you have nothing more to tell me, only then will I want to be left alone to get on with it, exercising complete autonomy, the artist's prerogative of knowing best. We had been warned. <laughs> First meeting of the architect, I won't go through every bit. Uh, he said, let us discuss the nature and anatomy of the theatre. Lasden again, it seems to us that we must work from the centre outwards, that everything must spring from that. Larry, how can we get the atmosphere of an old theatre in a new one? Plaster and wood is better for voice. Lasden's response, engaged intensity is the central thing. We cannot duplicate the furnishings of an old theatre except by pastiche. Michel Saint-Denis said something became very influential. I'm dreaming about a space stage that would give the feeling of audience and actor being in the same room. A month or so later, Lasden came up with this first plan, Scheme A, to which Larry said, could we not reduce the Gothic severity by making it more circular? Lasden, no, the angular relationship is deliberate. Larry, I just rather like it circular. Lasden's architectural response, it could be written as a circle. Brooke, this is what I dreaded. It looks like you, what would come if you fed the requirements into a computer. A couple of months later, 
Lasden came up with this design of scheme B, which was the root of the whole of the rest of the process. I won't list all those things, but it's the feeling of one room. The seating should be non-hierarchical. All the audience was in 65 feet, etc. Larry, couldn't we concentrate on making a place where actors feel marvelous? <laughs> Brooke, whatever you do, you must do it properly. This is arrangement is the worst of all possible worlds. Lasden, from what Brooke is saying, all he seems to want is a bomb site on Brethnal Green. <laughs> it's dead easy. And to do it on the South Bank site, but is this really a national theatre? So a little conflict had already begun. Then a strange hiatus. In February 1965, the Sunday Times leaked this article uh, about recent theatre building and current plans, and they included these sketches. You'll notice a version of Lasden's scheme on the left and the Barbican on the right. Unfortunately, it also said that the Barbican was going to be better for actors and it was going to be cheaper. This caused considerable fury from Lasden. He demanded that all the documents given to the building committee should be withdrawn and returned to him, and he accused Peter Hall of having leaked the story. I'm not sure anyone knows the truth of it, but it does sound somewhat likely. <laughs> the committee did not meet for 15 months. In the meantime, Lasden was dealing with the whole building. Huge budget crisis, the whole project was nearly cancelled. The opera house that was going to be part of it was cut and they moved the site to this site here. It was going to be by County Hall. But during that interim period, the committee who'd all been thinking about it had really turned against Scheme B. They met on their own. I thought it best to have a meeting between ourselves without the inhibiting influence of Lasden. John Dexter, I committed to an open stage, but not to Scheme B this 16-foot gallery locked around the back corner, etc., etc. Everyone had gone against it to the extent that Tynan added, if we're united, we can overcome him. <laughs> Endless models were made. I think the truth is the committee was troubled. Sir Lawrence was not the strongest chairman and he didn't have that strong a set of views. The committee seldom all turned up on two consecutive meetings and they never agreed with each other. So Laston, who had sought clear instruction, probably never got it. But after this blow up, he did a scheme C and a scheme D and a scheme E, which is very, very like the building, the Olivier Theatre upstairs. The feature of it was that it was locked in by a concrete balcony all the way around the room. And some of us, Michael Elliott particularly, were very concerned about this. And we went to meet Sir Lawrence after a performance of, I think it was Dance of Death at his apartment in uh, Victoria. And we talked at some length and Larry said, I want to be in the same room as the audience, but my God, I need to be able to come from three miles away. I want infinity. So I said, well, what about something like this? And I drew uh, a little drawing 
which was the Lasden Room, but with a stage at the end of it. That, incidentally, is the old Vic superimposed, that black, dark shadow. So rather than the concrete wall, 16 feet high, all round the back of the stage, I suggested it should have this fly tower. I sent this to Larry in confidence, and to my considerable shock, Lasden phones up about half an hour later, absolutely insane with anger, and demanded I attend his office immediately. Um, how dare you do this? You've changed the skyline of my building forever. And I suppose I probably had. <laughs> but Larry professed himself immensely happy. So, that building, the, the Olivier Theatre took three years of discussion. The Proscenium Theatre was discussed and discarded in two meetings. Everyone knew what a Proscenium Theatre was. There was no need to talk about it. The Studio Theatre was cut for financial reasons. But this is where we ended up. The Littleton Theatre we're sitting in, not quite a Proscenium Theatre like Matcham would have designed. Uh, it's very wide. It's uh, 52 feet wide at the front of the stage. It has this funny two-part iron curtain, which was so Larry could get right to the edge of the stage. And uh, it, you couldn't be guillotined if you were sitting in the front row. Uh, it has a balcony that in many ways is too high and too far away, but Lasden can't actually be blamed for that because Jenny Lee, the Ministry of Culture at the time, demanded adding 200 seats. It was 750, it's now uh, virtually 1,000. And it has a large repertory stage. But the auditorium is very wide, the balcony is remote, and some people like and some people dislike the concrete side walls. In particular, uh, Albert Finney opened the theatre with his Hamlet, and in reply to the question, who would build a violin out of fucking concrete? <laughs> the Olivier Theatre, the subject is immensely prolonged discussions. An open stage with, quote, Larry's request, full scenic capability, and a stage for doing repertory, three productions simultaneously if necessary. Again, a strange theatre, the sight lines are sort of a bit weird. Polly might talk about that in a moment. The balcony is an awful long way away, but the seats in the middle of the orchestra are quite wonderful. Uh, and I find, you know, here is lovely. I find this less lovely. I had an interesting experience for that famous 50th performance. I sat in the middle of the dress circle and Judy Dench gave her uh, send in the clowns. That is her at full scale. <laughs> Four weeks later in Connecticut, where I live, I went to our local cinema and short saw the, the NT live version, and Judy was rather better. And it made me think, what are we doing in designing theatres? Uh, have we forgotten, Larry? Can't we concentrate on making a place where the actors feel marvellous? When Peter Hall was appointed, he demanded and was given the studio theatre. And I asked my mate Ian McIntosh, because Larry, uh, Dennis was apparently too busy to do it, 
could we come up with a design? And Ian came up with the Cottesloe over a weekend, quite brilliantly, which, as you know, is a flexible space, a courtyard space, go to a flat floor, any other shape, and these wonderful promenade productions that were such a feature a long while ago. I wish they still did them. There's lots of technology uh, in the building. Uh, we were incredibly lucky. Over there is a lighting control system that was designed for the National Theatre, custom-built. Nobody would ever build a custom-built theatre uh, control these days, but in those days we were allowed to, and, you know, the, the familiar drum revolve and all that stuff was part of the whole thing. So, two great men, the greatest actor of our time, strangely uncertain about his views on theatre architecture, and a great architect. I had a wonderful relationship with Dennis after the rows that I've mentioned, uh, because he asked him to do the architectural lighting, and we had an incredibly interesting time there. He wanted it all like a cave lit by candles and make all his beautiful concrete come to life. About four years after the uh, after the the National opened, he actually called me and asked me to go and see him. And he said, Richard, I think I've worked out what you do. <laughs> oh, I said, Dennis, thank you. He said, uh, you know about theatre. So I said, well, thank you very much. And he said, I'm going to do an opera house in Genoa. Would you work with me? And we did work together in a tremendously close and wonderful relationship with our initiating the concept of the auditorium, which we've done ever since the National, and Heaton turning it into a brilliant building. We didn't win. Okay, so very, very quick talk about theatre architecture. We have a fantastic heritage in Britain of the most wonderful theatres in the world, places of intimacy and richness. Unfortunately, in the 1960s, we were at the end of a terrible period in theatre architecture. There were rules. Everyone had to sit facing the stage. None of those naughty boxes on the side walls, you know, which might distract you from the view. And everyone was equal in the 60s, so everyone had to be at the same level. There was a theory that if you were in the third row, you were equal to the man in the 15th row, which, of course, complete bullshit. But that was how we were taught to design theatres when I first began. And theatres today are immensely complicated. We have all these fantastically contradictory requirements. Uh, fire, audience comfort, disabled access, lighting, all that stuff. I've come to think something very different is important. And that is their spaces for human interaction. That's what matters, the audience. You all. There were signposts along the way. Frank Dunlop, the young Vic, was a breakthrough, the first thrust stage to be set in a courtyard. Uh, the Royal Exchange in Manchester, which designed simultaneously with the National uh, amazing theatre in the round. Uh, the furthest seat is 32 feet, and it seats 700 people, and is as powerful today as it was then. A great moment for me was we did the reconstruction of the Theatre Royal Nottingham with Renton Howard Wood. This is all, almost all new structure. And I sat in the seat opening night and Ken Dodd was on stage. The audience were rolling about in hysterical laughter. And I looked across here and I thought, oh my God, 
but in 1976 you would never dream of building a theatre like this. And it's not the gold and gingerbread decoration, it's the people. It's the people's faces that bring auditoria to life. I had an opportunity 20 years later to test this. Back to my old first big theater, I produced, as a producer, I did I'm Not Rappaport, American comedy. We had the great Paul Schofield playing the lead. Not, it was a comedy, not a titter on opening night. <laughs> Following morning, his agent calls me at seven o'clock, says, uh, Mr. Schofield's ill, he can't play the part. And I said, oh, It'll all be all right. No, no, he said, you don't understand. You'll have a doctor's certificate by lunchtime. I said, no, please don't. Uh, we must meet. We must talk. And we did a deal that day. And I said to Paul that if you stay for three weeks, if you're not happy at the end of three weeks, I'll close the show. No recriminations whatsoever. Two weeks later, we opened here, the Apollo Shaftesbury Avenue. It seats 70 more people. Same play, same set, same actors, same lighting, same everything. The only thing that changed was the auditorium. Paul had a standing ovation, went on for five minutes. We ran for six months without an empty seat in the house. So there's something about theatre architecture that's important. Uh, it's interesting, some of the greats of the 20th century worked in, quote, old-fashioned theatres. Bertolt Brecht, P. Brook himself. It's the role of the audience that I think we theatre people had all underestimated in the 60s. Okay, a very quick canter through some new theatres. Glyndebourne, ravishing new opera house, again designed by Ian McIntosh, uh, opens next spring a new opera house in Athens, Greece, by a great architect, Renzo Piano. Uh, theatre in Chicago, drama theatre in Chicago, it's the same, almost the same size as this, but a great deal more intimate. A huge theatre that you've all seen if you watch the Oscars, seen by more people on the planet than every other theatre in the world, uh, the Kodak in uh, Hollywood. And a terrible theatre of the 60s, as it used to be, transformed into a new theatre by bringing the balconies forward and wrapping the seats around the side of the room. Warhorse opened here in the States and was a great success. So I've come to believe that, yes, we're about performance, we're about all this backstage stuff, but we're also about the audience. You can find your granny here if you look carefully. <laughs> the audience bring theatre, live theatre, to life. So to close, P. Brook, the first requirement of theatre is to foster the relationship between actors and audience. Yes. Crucial factor is atmosphere. Yes. Etc. And... I've come to believe that the energy generated by the room full of people is what's the basic, basic rule of designing new theatres. That magic of place full of people. Ryland said, one living space of congregate play. And that's it. Thank you. Richard, thank you very much. So I think we're going to spend just a short while on actual productions. Yes. You and Paulie. Oh, if you like. Yes? I, uh, yes, fine. I, I think it's fascinating. Uh, Richard and I have got to know each other over the, uh, over the last sort of five or six years. 
And uh, one of the conversations that's kind of constantly been going on between us is Richard's concern about what he was essentially responsible for, which is these spaces that we make work in, and his concern about what they are, and his surprise at discovering that actually we love them. Because w one of th the things that's extraordinary about the National Theatre is that even though they're difficult spaces, and they are really tricky, the Olivier, I think, is consistently the most difficult space I ever work in, but there's something about it that it's also incredibly yielding, and it's exciting, and you can never be passive in your relationship with that stage. And I think while your concern is for that, I also think it kind of laid down an amazing challenge to us, which continues to challenge us, doesn't it? I think that's absolutely right. And um, it's interesting that to say that um, Peter Brook, in some of his comments, said that the trouble with architects is they're always concerned with purifying, whereas theatre relies on an antagonistic relationship to its space. You need grit in the oyster <laughs> for the energy of the performance to be generated. And, and actually, whether by accident or design, both the Olivier and the Littleton have, have grit, plenty, don't they? They give theatre makers constraints, they give them frustrations, and yet, when you overcome those, they're glorious spaces. And some of the best productions I've ever seen have been in the Olivier and, and in the Littleton, and yet I know intellectually that they were deeply problematic. I can see from a theatre designer's point of view what one would have done differently, and yet, and yet, there they are, they have that density of history, they have that patina of use, they have the provenance of all those extraordinary productions that have taken place in them, and suddenly, I think they're becoming part of the canon of spaces that perhaps we refer to nostalgically as the ones that we love, and why can't we make spaces like those anymore? Because they have a density and they have a, a sense of themselves. They're, you know, they're very particular personalities, aren't they? But actually at least their personalities. Exactly, you ignore them at your peril. And I mm. think that's really thrilling to, to meet that, isn't it? <coughs> I mean, it was an extraordinary moment when at that period in the 60s when this gigantic development was taking place and the Barbican as well. Wow. Can you, could we imagine today there being a time like that when that amount of theatre building and yeah. Central would, would actually happen? Um, and you very eloquently described the fact that, that Dennis Lasden was working, not in a vacuum, but certainly in a deeply conflicted, confused lack of consensus. I think it was Michael Elliott said that he, th he thought that the, uh, the discussion was taken in the shadow of the shattered ruins of some Tower of Babel, which I thought was, <laughs> you know, th this is it. N none of the great and the good of the theatre world could actually agree from one week to the next about what Dennis should be designing and what his priorities were. So to actually produce this extraordinary synthesis, not only of the auditoria, but of all the wider complicated relationships with city, with society, with the idea of what a, a national public building should be and how it should relate to a different sort of society which was emerging from the strictures of the, of the post-war years. To me, it's a miracle that he didn't get anything else wrong. You know, he got very, so much right about this building. Yeah, it is very interesting that the committee, to the best of my knowledge, I joined the committee toward the end of their uh, discussions, but I've, I've had all the minutes which I've been studying very carefully. The committee n mentioned a restaurant like twice, but they never ever discussed the front of house. 
the front of house, which Dennis called his fourth theatre, which I was lucky enough to work with him uh, from a lighting point of view, that was totally his creation, uninterrupted by anybody else. And in fact, there was some distress, like the house management in the last years before it opened were distressed because they weren't consulted about some practical What about things. the planners? Were there tussles with planners at all? I mean, we saw them, but nobody ever commented on them. Yeah. So that's his unique creation, and uh, quite brilliantly. Absolutely. Done. I mean, it's just interesting, quickly, to, to note for a start quite how much the context of the building has changed. The river walk didn't exist. There was nothing to the east. No Tate Modern, no Shakespeare's Globe, nothing whatsoever. And so it's not surprising that Lasden looked to Waterloo Bridge as his, what he called the umbilical cord, back to what was then, you know, the, the cultured, civilised part of London. None of the South Bank had happened um, beyond the, the south wall of that building. The Festival Hall was there, yes. But you can see bomb sites, empty lots, nothing to get any, any social, public or cultural purchase on. So the building yearns towards the North Bank. And those relationships with, with St. Paul's and with Somerset House beautifully worked through the sense of the terraces as public theatre. And it's interesting because Lauston was a man of his time and he very much believed in the idea of the raised ground for pedestrians, ground level for cars. So you deliver services and goods, you take rubbish away and you deliver people by cars at ground level. But actually pedestrians would somehow arrive at this raised level and he saw the pedestrian entrance as the first floor, an idea which he talked a lot about, but actually never really worked properly in practice, and it caused a lot of confusion um, ever since. But my goodness, these foyers are absolutely extraordinary. I, th I think they are part of what makes this building, for me, a real masterpiece. Yes, it's flawed, but it's one of the great buildings, I think, of the 20th century, certainly in this country. And that sense of the people as the decoration, the people as ornament, as the dynamic, performers in the public spaces of the building, I, th I think, absolutely worked. And there they are, this sort of Piranesian, chiaroscuro foyer, mysterious, open, unlike anything else that anybody had seen as a theatre-goer, used to go into sweaty, cramped front of house, crushed bars, never being able to get a drink properly, never being able to go to the loo because there aren't any or there aren't enough. All of this was what he actually dealt with, was what he pulled off. It's an extraordinary feat, really, which, which doesn't really have any precedent. So in 1976, that was the public territory of the building. Later on in 97, the very excellent firm of Stanton Williams made some alterations and extensions. Still nothing going on to the east, which is the top left of the drawing. So they made the front of house really yearn towards the west, to the left. And what we did was try and open up the building in the NT Future work, which was to make that public territory wrapped around much more of the building because the city had come alive around it in the time between last and finishing the building and us coming on stream around about 2007. So we've made the whole building more publicly porous and opened up public spaces. New windows like this so you can see out onto the, uh, the view of Somerset House for the first time at ground level. So that vehicular plane, which was broadly a service level, becomes very much a public level and this extraordinary sculptural corner which 
at the time of, of Lauston's completing the building was just a service yard. This is where service vehicles came. But now it's very much a public space, part of the territory which Lauston dreamed of. He talked about public life and energy around the building day and night. He talked about the building as a catalyst for other things happening over the years. So I like to think that he would have been quite pleased with the way that the building has become animate in the time since it was finished. Around the Cottesloe, just a service road at the time, now a public square which will become more animated as the South Bank becomes more dense. And as Richard said, the, the Cottesloe itself, now the Dorfman, still its old self, but re-equipped, re able to work more, more efficiently, more quickly, more capacity, and the occasional chance for some fun, for the cheeky shed which we built while the Cottesloe was shut and hold a, a temporary two to three hundred seat auditorium. And Paulie, we were talking about the energy and the opportunity of a project like that as a pointer towards possible future versions of this theatre. Yeah, and I think also that it, it created something new for us as makers. And I think that's, you know, it's following that great history that it was a, a something new for us to play with, something new for us to adopt. It was a response that felt s a suitable response for a building that in itself is so such a, a confident thing that it feels like the juxtaposition of something so contemporary, so sort of at odds and yet at ease with it was really it's so vibrant. Um, sad it has to be temporary, but actually its temporary nature was also thrilling. And you think there's more possibility for that in the future then, isn't it? Not having to fix, which I think is, it, it's so f uh, true that I think even Olivier's concern in that very early stage about not knowing what the theatre wanted to be is actually a typical thing about us as theatre practitioners that we fear the permanent because we never make anything that's permanent. And that's why I think the relationship between architect and architecture and theatre makers is fascinating because so often you're making things that are and we're making things that aren't. And somehow we need to, you know, it's finding a common ground is, is, is extraordinary, frightening. And our DNA is programmed to solve problems, <laughs> to, to iron out the problematic. Mm. Whereas actually it's, it's the problematic which makes theatrical space so intense yeah. and so beguiling. So I think we, as architects, we need to learn to make unfinished theatres yeah. in the confident knowledge that we are then in the hands of theatre makers like you guys who can complete them in different forms for every production, every evening, in fact, because the other intangible is the live performance itself, which we can never predict. Well, it's making theatre isn't about control, is it? Great theatre is about imagination, possibility, yes. uh, you know, as, uh, we all want a personal relationship with what we're looking at, what we're experiencing. And I think that's true for the architecture as well, isn't it? It is. And I think just, just coming full circle, I think the great legacy of, of Dennis Lauston is that, you know, despite the critique of the building, sometimes feeling monumental, sometimes feeling hermetic, actually it's a very broad framework for freedom of theatre makers. I think all it's needed is the confidence to accept that it's, it is a thick-skinned building. It can take some insouciance, it can take a bit of cheek, it can mm. take a kicking, mm. actually, because it's strong, it's confident in its own voice. So I'm really cheered by the fact that theatre makers are taking on these spaces and wrestling them to the ground mm. and forcing beautiful, vibrant, intimate, extraordinary productions out of them, sometimes kicking and screaming, but actually they are, in themselves beautiful spaces and I think the, the building as a whole 
as I say, will will live on as a, mm. as a masterpiece. It is an extraordinary piece of work. This is a conversation that could go on for hours. It's wonderful, fascinating. Well, we paid great tribute to Dennis Lasden for this, but I think we also realized tonight uh, that one of the people, well, the, the key person who's made this theater work is here with us, Richard Pilbrow. So thank you very much indeed. <laughs>